Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Hello and welcome to The New Economy. I'm Stephanie Flanders, head of Bloomberg Economics. One thing I've noticed in 25 years of writing and thinking about the global economy, we spend so much time anticipating the big changes that are coming down the track. By the time they actually happen, they seem like old news. When it comes to the rise of China, it's not old news at all. It's happening right now and not at all in the way that many Western policymakers hoped in the late 1990s when they were negotiating to bring China into the World Trade Organization, the WTO. Back then, I was working for Larry Summers, then Deputy Treasury Secretary. We found ourselves grappling with what became the Asia financial crisis. A string of countries, Thailand, Indonesia, Korea, all ended up letting go of their currencies. Chinese exporters were saying the Chinese currency needed to fall as well to let them compete. I remember going along with Summers in early 1998 to a grand room in the Forbidden City in Beijing for an audience with the man who was then steering Chinese economic policy, Zhu Rongji. He gave a magisterial assessment of what had happened in the region. It may have been the jet lag, but I think even Summers felt a bit outclassed. Zhu made clear that when it came to the currency, China would hold firm. And that was good news for the region and the world. It helped stop more dominoes from falling, at least in Asia. But there was a message in that restraint. This was a country that was willing to think long term. Fast forward to today, and China is punching its weight in ways that confront the so-called Washington consensus head on. Now, the US president's doing a bit of that himself. We might get to that later with two people who've spent probably an unhealthy amount of their lives thinking about China, Tom Orlick and Andrew Brown. But first, here's Ender Curran, senior Asia economy correspondent for Bloomberg News from the streets of Hong Kong. In my past three years covering China and the region's economies for Bloomberg News, I have seen a marked increase in China's global influence. Until 2015, for example, the only global body led by China was the International Network for Bamboo and Rattan. It now has a much bigger say at the IMF through more voting rights and high-level representation. It has its own global development bank, the AIIB, set up to rival the World Bank. And in the face of Donald Trump's trade policies, China's leaders are claiming to be the champions of globalization. Here's Curtis Chin, former US ambassador to the Asian Development Bank under Presidents George W. Bush and Barack Obama, and now the inaugural Asia Fellow at the Milken Institute. Every country, through its development assistance, through its partnerships, at the end of the day is looking out after its own interests. Uh, That's no different in China today or Europe uh, in the U.S. today or in the past. I think the real question comes back to when a country advances its own interests by advancing a form of of, uh, global economic governance, the U.S. has advanced free trade and connectivity, the key question is, will countries in looking out after their own interests harm other countries? I think that's the question today. 
When I speak with officials and business people and economists, there are usually two takes on what China's growing influence means for the world economy. Optimists say China offers a vital source of financing to governments desperate to build infrastructure and grow their economies. Critics say the likes of the AIIB are merely window dressing for China's spider's web of lending channels that lack transparency and are effectively an arm of the Communist Party. Alicia Garcia Herrero has worked in the official sector for institutions such as the IMF during the Mexico crisis. She's also worked for the European Central Bank and Bank for International Settlements. Alicia is now based in Hong Kong as Chief Asia Economist for French bank Natixis. Here's how she sums up the two-pronged aspect of Chinese finance overseas. China's new model is a two-layer model. So you see what you see, you don't see what is happening unless you really look at it very carefully. And even then, we probably still don't, don't know what is happening at, at, at its full meaning mm. for us. Recently, a backlash has been growing against China's expanding influence. There's the very public trade spat with Donald Trump, but there's also ongoing disputes with Europe at the WTO and smaller skirmishes like Malaysia's government dropping plans for China to fund major infrastructure works and Australia's government blocking Huawei from competing to build a nation's 5G phone network. Here's Curtis Chin again. Clearly, China's approach to development, to uh, lending, to assistance to its neighbours, not just in Asia, but also in Africa and around the world, has had benefits but it's also come with challenges that countries are now really beginning to think through. The IMF too has warned that China may be loading up poorer nations with even more debt, and others say China's overall lending lacks transparency. China, of course, refutes those complaints. Here's AIIB President Jin LeCun, who recently spoke with Bloomberg Television. Contrary to some other people's misconception, it's not a program dominated by China. It's the program by which China works with other countries, working with international financial institutions, multilateral development banks. So it's kind of cooperation. Unfortunately, some people misunderstood this as a kind of China program. China wants to, to take advantage of this to promote its own interests, which nothing could be further from the truth. So how did we get to this point? Complacency among Western leaders played a role. Lending by the International Monetary Fund and World Bank often carried bitter conditions that enraged nations from Indonesia to Greece, sparking riots on the streets. The process of navigating loan approval was also laced with politics. I spoke with Louis Cowes, formerly of the IMF and World Bank, and now lead Asia economist at Oxford Economics. There's no doubt about it that China's cloud globally has been on the rise. It has been on the rise, I think, for two reasons. One is a very obvious one, it's an economic one. Simply, if you're, if you're becoming bigger economically, you, 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 you carry more cloud. You, you do more trade, people look more at you, you have more money to spend on development and Belt and Road projects, all these kind of things. Also, I would say the global financial crisis did hurt a little bit, you know, the image of uh, Western-style democracy and capitalism, and so that has also played in China's favours. The global financial crisis, a moment that laid bare the fragilities of the Western model and gifted China an opportunity to step up on the global stage. Herrero witnessed the limitations of the Western model as an official at the IMF during the rescue of Mexico in the 1990s. 
we were late, so this is our fault, to reform the existing institutions, which were not working, uh, uh, I would say, especially for those newcomers. Uh, so that's our fault. Think that we were naive not to realize that it was not only about, you know, China Inc. manufacturing, but it was much more booming already then. And and we were not naive not to be more generous with such a uh, growing power. For now, China's influence is still increasing. In September, President Xi greeted Afghan leaders in Beijing and promised over 60 billion in financing. That was around the same time that Donald Trump said he would skip two major summits in Asia in November, stoking concerns about American commitment to the region. That's an opportunity China is keen to exploit through pushing its view of a future with itself at the heart of the global economy. Here's Louis Cowes. My main worry about the future is a little bit that collision course between these different economic models and what they would mean for for relations globally between the US and China, between China and and other countries more generally. You know, and I, I don't want to be too negative because, you know, China's growth is definitely a positive for the rest of the world and China's willingness to invest in other countries is on a net basis a positive for the rest of the world. But that, you know, the issue of these different economic models is going to become an issue not with not just with the US but also with other countries. We see that, you know, the Europeans have issues with China's model and I think that we see it a little bit in India and Brazil as well. So this is, you know, we're not, this is not a done deal. Just as the architecture of global trade is being challenged, the world economy's governance structures are evolving to accommodate China's role. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. That was Enda Curran reporting uh, from Hong Kong. Well, listening to all that with me have been uh, Andrew Brown, who's a former columnist and bureau chief in China for the Wall Street Journal, but now the editorial director for the New Economy Forum at Bloomberg, and our own chief economist, Tom Orlick, who's just moved back to Washington after 11 years in Beijing. Maybe ask you, Andrew, if, if you go back to when China joined the WTO at the beginning of the century. You know, how has the reality of China's rise compared with the kind of predictions that we were making around that time? Yeah, well, you, ha- you have to remember that China's entry into the WTO was part of a much bigger project, which was to bring this rising power into the global economic financial security architecture. It was summed up by Bob Zelik with the phrase that China should become a responsible stakeholder in the global system, the US-led global system. And it's worked pretty well in places. 
China is now the biggest contributor to UN peacekeeping. Chinese ships are involved in anti-piracy off the coast of East Africa, keeping the sea lanes open to the Persian Gulf. China has signed up to arms control agreements, has signed, is, does not proliferate nuclear weapons. That's been very successful. The bit that they got wrong was on integrating China into the global economy, in particular into the WTO. And what they failed to consider were the implications of integrating China's massive armies of cheap labor and its deep pools of capital into the global economy. Um, it was seen as a slam dunk that China's markets were closed, America's were open, and so when China brought down tariffs, you would get this rush of U.S. exports into China. In fact, what happened was that you had this China shock. Uh, two million, two and a half million American workers lost their jobs. Whole towns were decimated. I mean, you can see it now in the U.S. Rust Belt. On the the financial side, what happened was that, sure, uh, Chinese purchases of U.S. treasuries kept interest rates low, uh, and that was good for business, but it also led to financial uh, excess and, of course, gave rise to the 2008 uh, financial crisis. The third mistake that I think they made was that they thought the American policymakers at the time thought that this was going to be the start of economic reforms in China, and that once China joined the WTO, we would see the economy progressively become more open. And in fact, it turned out to be the high watermark of reform. And that right now, what you're seeing is reform stalling and even going backwards. Tom, um, we tend to view other people's, other nations' success through the prism of our own insecurities. I guess if you were China, you'd say, Look, you wouldn't be complaining about our success if you hadn't been having, if you didn't have all these problems in your own uh, backyard with uh, with populism and other things, aren't they? Aren't we just? Um, shouldn't we just focus on our own concerns rather than blaming it all on China? Well, one of the funny things, Stephanie, is that um, when you sit in Beijing, as uh, Andy and I did for for a number of years, uh, what you see coming through on the Chinese propaganda and the the Chinese newspapers and television is a certain amount of, uh, if not glee, at least kind of like smug self-satisfaction, uh, the evidence of sort of social dysfunction and political dysfunction uh, that you see in the US and Europe. Uh, there's nothing that China television likes better than broadcasting a riot in Greece uh, or a violent protest in the United States. And the implicit message is, look, that system is broken and our system works. Um, coming back to your question about whether it's sort of unfair to blame populism, blame uh, the dysfunctions that we have, um, uh, whether we'd be less dissatisfied with China if we didn't have these dysfunctions at home. I think there's certainly an element of truth in that. But what I would add is that whilst the sources of the dysfunctions we see in the West are complex and they relate to social policy failures, they relate to the rise of technology, they relate to forces unleashed by globalization that go beyond uh, just the rise of China, uh, China is part of the picture. And it is Chinese imports, cheap Chinese imports, um, Chinese industrial policy giving a, what many see as an unfair advantage to Chinese firms, which is to blame for an element of the problems that we see in terms of inequality and lost wages. And one of the things that Ender's sort of focusing on in that piece is the way that China itself has taken a more muscular role in some of these institutions. And indeed, it's creating, in the case of the infrastructure, by creating its own institution 
for having influence on the world. When you look at what they've done in Africa and Latin America, is this a country that is actually trying to impose an alternative model onto the world or is it just pursuing its core national interest? I'm not sure we can effectively divide those two things. Um, when China pursues its national interest, it does so in a way which is suited to and driven by and accommodated to its national model. So when the US goes overseas, it goes, goes, goes overseas with its mighty private corporations and its free markets. And those are the approaches which, which benefit those corporations and also perpetuate the, the US model. And when China goes overseas, uh, it goes overseas with its huge state-owned banks and its huge state-owned enterprises and companies that want to do business with China, uh, countries that want to do business with China, then have to do business with the China model. So the pursuit of self-interest and the perpetuation or the expansion of a particular model of governance, I think they go hand in hand. But are they encouraging in these deals a less transparent way of doing business? Are they pulling these countries away from the kind of things that the West would have tried to push on them, you know, rule of law, transparency? I mean, Andy, Ender talked about the optimist and the pessimist views of, of China when it comes to this, this lending and development aid in other countries. What do you think? I mean, regardless of, of what you think about the Belt and Road Initiative, which is really the prime vehicle through which China is providing infrastructure to the world, whether you think that this is a geopolitical play, whether you think, like many in India do, that this is neo-colonialism with China as the metropole, uh, building infrastructure, lending money to small neighbors to bring them into its orbit and to create uh, dependencies are on Chinese periphery, or whether you just think the whole thing is a big marketing scam, it's hard not to feel positive about China building infrastructure across some of the most unstable and less least developed parts of the world, from Central Asia to the Middle East and, and, and North Africa. I mean, it's a good thing that China is powering up Pakistan by building power stations there. Of course, it would be much better if it put in clean power stations rather than the old model that it's, um, you know, knocking around in China. Um, but that, I think, is, is very positive. The problem is the, the, the way the Chinese go about it. I mean, you know, Tom and I, we say living in China, we've watched this happening. And China infrastructure is 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 heroic in its ambition I mean they build uh, airports they build train stations they build whole cities ahead of demand and it just sort of sits there empty you know and eventually the idea is that you know given the pace of urbanization in China all of this surplus infrastructure will eventually come in useful and often it does um, but very often it doesn't and this form of de of, of development is huge wasteful. You can afford it if you're China and you're a continental-sized economy and you have deep pools of savings. If you're a Sri Lanka and you build a port and you haven't got done your preparatory work and you don't know whether it's going to turn a profit or not and it doesn't and you don't have any ships coming in, you can bankrupt the country and that's what we're seeing now across much of the developing world. The rise of great powers has almost always caused trouble, as we know when you look through history. In fact, the, the rise of the US as a superpower was more or less the, the exception. You know, in your gut, Andy and Tom, 
do you think we are on a fundamentally peaceful trajectory as China starts to really punch its weight in in the world? Or do you worry at some point about where this is going to go? Look, a lot of everybody is talking now about the Thucydides trap and learnedly quoting Thucydides who said that, you know, it was the rise of Athens and the fear that this inspired in Sparta that made war inevitable. And Graham Allison at Harvard has talked about this and he's looked at power transitions that have occurred through history and mostly they end in in war. Uh, I certainly don't think that war is inevitable, certainly not war these days between great powers in, an, in a nuclear age is almost unthinkable. Um, I don't think China and the U.S. are going to go to war. China certainly doesn't want that. I worry more about Chinese nationalism and, and the particular kind of nationalism that you have in China now, which is a, a, a resentful type of nationalism that looks backwards to this century of humiliation. I worry that that's combined with a military buildup, navalism that we're seeing in China, uh, combined now with aggressive or expansive Chinese territorial claims, particularly in the maritime domain. I worry about an arms race, that this is triggering an Asia. I worry particularly about Taiwan, whether China is going to run out of patience with Taiwan and its pro-independence leanings. And of course, nuclearization, the, the nuclear arms race in Asia now, I think is one to be worried about. So you, when you started that, I actually thought that you were going to say, but this is all too gloomy and you ruled out the really catastrophic nuclear global scenario. But then your list of other things to worry about was so long that I'm not sure I feel like I've ended up in a in a happier place. Tom, in just in your gut, are you as worried about the sort of regional implications, the regional instabilities that come out of this, even if we're not necessarily looking, I hope, at the end of the world? Um, so uh, firstly, I think the mention of Thucydides' trap reminds me that international relations as a discipline hasn't come up with any... Uh, New, uh, new, new paradigm since uh, since ancient Greece, which I think reflects badly on international relations scholars. <laughs> um, coming back to the question, I, I think Andy, um, you know, hit several nails on the head. But um, um, for me, the key point that he made, and which I agree with, is: Are we going to see an all-out conflict between China and the United States? Clearly not. In the nuclear age, that would be catastrophic for all concerned. Um, are we going to see more frequent conflicts over specific issues like the South China Sea, potentially like Taiwan, potentially around North Korea? Yes, I think absolutely. As China rises, uh, China's interests will increasingly clash with those of the US and its neighbours, and those regional hotspots are going to get hotter. I think there's, there's quite a lot coming through this conversation about what we've said about the WTO, the decline of, of multilateralism, the move to a more kind of deal-based global economy and geopolitics and more nationalism. I think that's definitely when people look at China and also, frankly, look at the US and other parts of the world, that feels like where we're heading is, is, is more nationalism, less multilateralism and uh, move away from, from rule-based decision-making. Plenty to be discussed among other places at the New Economy Forum. I'm sure we'll be talking about that in uh, Singapore. But uh, Tom Orlick and Andrew Brown, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks Nesta. Thanks for listening to The New Economy. Today's episode was reported by Ender Curran with editor Malcolm Scott and produced by Magnus Henriksen. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcast. 
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.